Amen. Welcome to The Grove. Uh, My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here at The Grove, and we are continuing our study here in this sermon series through the beginning of the year called Go Make Teach. It's for five weeks in this month of January. We're just staring at and meditating on this great commission that Jesus has given us. So we've clarified what our mission is in these last two weeks. Jesus has made it abundantly clear what we should focus on as a church and what we should focus on with our lives individually as Christians. Listen again to what he tells us in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. As Jesus, after he's raised from the dead, is then sending his disciples out and gives them this, what is known as the Great Commission. He says this, Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So summed up, we're looking at these three words which sum up this great commission, go, make, teach. Two weeks ago, we saw how Jesus told us to go, that anyone who's been saved by Jesus has been sent by Jesus, that we ought to approach our lives with a kind of sent mentality. We want to be resolved this year to go by approaching everyday moments with gospel intentionality and by connecting ourselves to God's global mission because you have been called to go. Now, last week, we saw that we've also been called to make We want to see people baptized, people turn to trust in Jesus. We want to work to see people who weren't followers of Jesus and do our part to make them followers of Jesus as they're then baptized as an outward sign of that inward belief. So we determined this year to find one person who's near to us but far from God as we're always being ready to share our faith and committed to pray often, engage consistently, and invite to the next right thing because you have been called by Jesus to make. And so we felt so far the missional and evangelistic impulses of this great commission. Jesus said, go, make disciples, all nations, baptize them. And when I've heard the great commission taught growing up, that's usually the emphasis I hear, missional, going, making, sharing, nations, baptizing. But we need to be careful here. Because if we stop right there, we fall into the temptation of having a faith that spreads out wide but doesn't go very deep. If our only commands are to go and make, then we might believe that our mission is to go and get as big of a crowd as possible, as many people as possible. Let's go and make converts and then move on to the next person once they've turned to trust in Jesus. In fact, one prominent American pastor put it this way to his church. He told them, the moment you join this church, it stopped being about you. He was saying that in reference to people who were talking about what Bible study they wanted to do. And he was saying it didn't matter because we need to be focused on the outside. And once you join, it's not about you anymore because we need to be focused on what is out there, on going to the lost, on going and making, not on what Bible study we're going to do. And friends, it's here that I've seen this mistake made that people pit against one another evangelism and discipleship. Like you've got to choose between one or the other. 
Like a waiter comes, says, what do you want for dinner? You've got to choose an entree. We don't realize that as we read through the scriptures of what Jesus has called us to, we're on a cruise ship and we get to just do both. I was at dinner on my first cruise and I was, the waiter came and I said, I don't know what I want, the lobster or the steak. And he said, you can just have both of them. You don't have to choose. Friends, you don't have to choose between evangelism and discipleship. Jesus is calling us to both. People may say, what's the church going to be about? Reaching people or teaching people? My response is that I'm pretty sure Jesus expects us to do both of those. Yes, go, live missionally, make disciples, baptize, share your faith, bring people to Jesus. But the commission doesn't end there. Jesus then continues and says this. Those people that have now turned to Jesus, teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. A fundamental element of the Great Commission is our call to teach, to equip, to invest, to not only make disciples, but to form disciples. So if we strive as a church to go into our community and just get people to simply make decisions before moving on to the next person, then we fail to obey this clear command of our King. Friends, we are called to make disciples not just have people make decisions. Because if making decisions was our goal, then there are things that we can do to get people to simply make a decision. can set the mood right. I've seen emotional manipulation to try to just get people to make a choice, and then we act like that's what a disciple is. Right? I don't know if you were raised in the church or have experience in the church in your past, but maybe you've seen some of this. There's been times I've been in a church and there's the great call by the preacher at the very end then to turn and trust in Jesus and the lights get dim. He tells everybody, every eye closed, every head bowed, lights go down, fog machine begins, minor chords start playing in the background and he begins to say, if this is your moment, this is it, don't let it pass, raise your hand. You can just, even just a little bit, just raise it if you want to choose to trust in Jesus today. And as it's happening, right, all your heads are bowed, all your eyes are closed and all of a sudden you hear him say, I see that hand. I see that hand. If you've ever been in that scenario, have you ever wanted to just open up and be like, is there, are there really hands going up? Or are you just saying that to try to get people to be more comfortable to maybe raise their hand to try to help the Holy Spirit out as people are turning to trust in Jesus? Or another example uh, I've seen online by a large church in the South is they gave this to their volunteers and eventually got out to others as well, but they wrote up a spontaneous baptism how-to guide. I'm not a wordsmith by any means, but I'm pretty sure that's not what spontaneous is. I don't think you plan it and then tell people how to do it. I think spontaneous just happens. But regardless, in this guide, they told their volunteers that on these services that they're planning, they wanted to make sure they have volunteers in all these different places, but 15 especially throughout the audience, scatter them throughout the audience. These will be baptism counselors. So that at the moment when the pastor calls for people to make a decision and come forward for baptism, at that moment, about 60 minutes into the service, very planned and spontaneous, at about 60 minutes into the service, when they're called, those 15 people are then to rise and go to where they're supposed to be. Now, here's what they tell them in particular, to, quote, move intentionally through the highest visibility areas and the longest walk. Why? Because this gives the impression that at the moment of the call for baptism, there's this huge response immediately, and it might help them people go, oh, well, I'm not the first one. This is a little bit easier. Let me just follow the crowd. It encourages those thinking about it so they won't have to be the first 
to move. Listen, if you've been in church, you probably have your own stories like this, unfortunately. But it all comes back to this misunderstanding of what we are called to make, about what conversion really is, and what it is is we are called to make disciples and not just decisions. See, when Jesus called people to follow him, he didn't lower the bar. In fact, he raised it. He wanted to make it crystal clear to anyone that came to him what it would mean to follow him. When the rich young ruler came to him wanting eternal life, Jesus didn't have him close his eyes and raise his hand while his uh, instrumentalist in the background started playing minor chords. No, he told him, go, sell everything you have and come and follow me. Because until I am the greatest treasure in your life, you don't know what it means to be my disciple. And the man walked away. Or when a huge crowd gathered after seeing Jesus' miracles, he then fed thousands of people with a boy's lunch of five loaves of fish, uh, five loaves of bread, and two fish. The people came and they wanted to make him king. But Jesus didn't start the fog machine and dim the lights to create a more worshipful experience. He told them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the people were like, okay, we wanted you to be king. This just got weird. We're out of here. And the crowds left. And Jesus was left with a small group of disciples. Thousands left him. And a small group that had nowhere else to turn but to him. Jesus was left with disciples. So you didn't need to create the right environment for a worshipful experience. Because if you are near Jesus, then you are in the right environment for a worshipful experience. He doesn't need a fog machine. He is the image of the invisible God. All things were made through him and for him. And he has come for you. His gospel doesn't need our manipulation. It is the power of God for salvation. So we preach it unashamedly and call men and women to follow the God who died for them in their place to save them from their sin. And then come to offer them life eternal and joy unimaginable. Jesus wanted to make it clear to anyone interested in him what he was looking for and what he was calling you to do. Jesus didn't want a group of manipulated decisions, but of motivated disciples. He didn't want a crowd that was entertained by him, but a group of men and women that looked at him and said, I believe that you actually are who you said you are. And I'm willing to follow you whatever it might cost because I think that you're worth it. I think you're better than anything that I have. My job, my family, any pleasure, any wealth, any comfort, you are now my greatest treasure and I want to follow you. Jesus put it this way in the parable of a man in a field. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's buried in a field. That a man found and then reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Friends, that's how a disciple thinks. That Jesus is his greatest treasure. Giving up everything else so that he can have the thing that's most valuable in his life. To love him more than what he can do for him. You see, so many people were more interested with the ministry of Jesus rather than the person of Jesus. What he was doing was awesome, but they got pretty bored when it came to who he was. We want to make sure that we fight as a church not to create a culture where people get more interested in what we do, programs we offer, experiences we create, and then get bored with Jesus. We want to lift him up 
as our treasure and remind ourselves of the joy of following him as disciples and how they're not only made but also formed. Because if we're honest, that in this room, maybe you're here or maybe you're online listening and you'd say, man, I love Jesus, but I have a lot of work to do until I'm acting like that man in the field. Until I go and give up everything in my life in order to follow him as seeing him as the most valuable treasure in my life. Let me just tell you, if that is you, welcome to the club. We have all got work to do. None of us have made it. In fact, until we get to heaven, we won't make it. So if you are here and you're breathing, then you have work to do. And that's part of the reason why we have a church is that we can come together and help one another in this work. And so we are all in this together, as the great philosopher Zac Efron said in his work, High School Musical. So the question then goes to, how can we be formed into better disciples? If Jesus is this great treasure, if he's calling us to follow him and be his disciples, how then can we be formed into better disciples? How can we be shaped more into the image of the one that we're following? Well, friends, I think the answer to that question is answered by this final element of the Great Commission. Teach. We are formed as better disciples as we learn to observe all that Jesus has commanded us in his word. Studying the heart and character of God as he's revealed himself. Searching the works of God that he has done for the people he loves. And striving to follow the commands he's given us on how we are to live in this fallen world. Friends, we are formed into better disciples as we abide in his book. Not striving to master the Bible, but to have the Bible master us. And as we do that as a church and as individuals, then we will grow to become like that man with the field and be willing to give up everything because finally we found our greatest treasure. The man that the book was pointing to, Jesus Christ. So this final element of our mission is to teach. But we have to ask the question what that looks like in our lives. As Jesus has called us to teach, how can we do that in 2021 in your life? I would like to propose it as a commitment to do this. For you to be able to say, I will be committed to teach and to teach myself and those around me by being devoted to conscientious community and deep discipleship. To teach myself and those around me by being devoted to conscientious community and deep discipleship. Those two words are massively important, community and discipleship. They're so important, actually, we're going to split them into two weeks. So for the rest of our time, we'll look at the importance of conscientious community in our teaching. And next week, we'll look at deep discipleship. So teach part one is this week. Teach part two is next week. So today, community. What does community have to do with teaching? Well, what I want to look at, just two points then for the rest of our time, is I want to look at the biblical precedent, and then I want to look at our practical response. The biblical precedent and our practical response. First, the biblical precedent. What does community have to do with teaching? If you've got your Bibles, flip open to 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. If not, you can just write it down, can look it up later. 1 Thessalonians 2. This is the first letter that we have from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. If you don't know where it is, right before 2 Thessalonians um, and right after 1 Thessalonians 1. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul's writing to this church 
And in chapter 2, verse 8, he puts his relationship with them this way. He wants to see these disciples formed. He wants to teach them as an apostle sent by Jesus to be formed into the image of Jesus. So what does Paul want to share with them to see them grow in their discipleship? Paul says these two things in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. He said, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God. So there's one thing. Paul said, we cared so much for you. We wanted to come and share the gospel of God. We wanted to come and share truth of what God has done for you. We wanted you to grow in discipleship and doctrine and truth and in Bible. We wanted to share the gospel with you. But he said, not only did we want to share that, but also our own lives. Because you had become so dear to us. Paul writes to this church and he said, when we come to you, we want to share two things with you. We want to share the gospel, and we want to share our own lives. We want to share truth, and we want to form community. We want to see relationships grow. We want to see friendships flourish. We care about you. This isn't just a didactic experience. This isn't just the church gathering together for Paul to teach a class. Paul cares for these people. And as he comes, he wants to share his own life with them. And so we see these twin aspects of teaching here, of discipleship and of community. One other place I want us to look at as we consider this great commission from Jesus in Matthew 28. He then tells his disciples, go make disciples, baptize them, all nations, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. How do the disciples respond? And who do they go to? We'll flip over to Acts 1 and 2, and you see how they respond. And in Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost happens. God's Spirit falls on the disciples. The gospel goes out, and thousands become Christians. And so as this great commission sees its very first fruits of obedience, what does that community look like? The people that then hear these disciples obeying the commission, going, making, and teaching... How do they respond, and what does that community look like? Because some people may say, Caleb, listen, this whole community thing, this whole church thing, it's not for me, man. I've got, I've got my Bible. I've got podcasts. I've got great worship music on Spotify. I don't need people. People get messy. I love Jesus. I just don't love his church. I don't know if you've heard that before. But friends, when we look back at the early church and this very first command that's given, notice and see, do the disciples hear that in Matthew 28 and go, okay, let's all individually go find one person. We'll go and pour into them and then tell that person to go find one other person. And we'll just go off on this Lone Ranger Christianity kind of one at a time. Or does it look completely different from that? In Acts 2, as this gospel is going out and disciples are made, look at what the community looks like in Acts 2, verse 42. It says this, These first Christians, the recipients of this great commission, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You skip down to verse 46. It says that every day they devoted themselves to meeting in the temple and broke bread from house to house. 
And so what we see immediately as the gospel goes out and this commission is taking root in Jerusalem, immediately community is formed. And within that community, they're studying the apostles' teaching. They're praying together. They're also eating meals together. They're going out to Chipotle. They're going to Chick-fil-A, except on Sundays. And they're going out and they're eating food and they're breaking bread daily, going into everyone's homes. And the obedience of the Great Commission didn't lead to a bunch of Lone Ranger Christians, but instead the formation of a conscientious community that committed themselves to each other and to God's word. These people were devoted to meeting together in the temple every day and sharing meals together every day. Their community wasn't accidental. It didn't form by being haphazard. It was intentional and it was conscientious. And it's in that kind of community where teaching best thrives and disciples are best formed. It's in the formation of community that helps foster the formation of disciples. Teaching grows best in community. It's like a greenhouse. I'm no planter, I'm no farmer, but I did look at Wikipedia about what a greenhouse was. And here's what we've got. This is what a greenhouse does. It says that warmth and humidity promote plant life. Well, that's true, and plants need moisture, warmth, and light to grow. And here's what a greenhouse does. A greenhouse stabilizes the growing environment by buffering the ambient temperature and protecting the plants from extreme cold. So a greenhouse doesn't make the plants grow, but it stabilizes the growing environment, maximizes the ability of the plants to be able to grow. Friends, conscientious community stabilizes the growing environment of disciples by offering commitment, love, encouragement, and teaching. It doesn't make it happen, but it creates this greenhouse in which disciples can best be formed in one another, in real and committed community. The apostles devoted themselves to forming community in order to see disciples formed. And it was what we want to strive to devote ourselves to as we want to see people taught to observe everything that Jesus commanded. But how can we do that? Okay, if that's the biblical precedent, how can we do that? How can we form that kind of community? Right, we don't all live within a few square miles of each other like in ancient Jerusalem. Right, we live in Winter Garden and Akoi and Montverde and Mineola and Claremont and some of us over by Jerusalem and Groveland. So can we strive to see that kind of conscientious community in our church and in your life? Is it possible? Or as I think it is, I think beyond possible, I think it's what God has commanded us to. So if that's the biblical precedent, what then is our practical response? What is our practical response? How does this play itself out? Well, we as a church would want to encourage you to two things then this year to respond to this conscientious community. And those two things, practically to respond, is through meaningful church membership and by joining a community group. Meaningful church membership and joining a community group. Do you want to join or do you want to form conscientious community in your life? Then, friends, join a healthy Bible teaching and gospel proclaiming church. Maybe it's this one. It doesn't have to be this one. There are other great churches in our area. Don't hop around and continue to kind of be on the outside of community. Find a church that you love. Find a church that preaches the gospel, that loves the Bible, and then plant yourself in and be committed to a group of Christians and to a, uh, underneath the authority of a group of pastors 
to then to be committed to loving and caring and serving for those people, using your gifts and your passions and your personality to be able to help edify and grow the people in that church. Make membership in a church mean more than just being a part of a club. Make your membership in a church matter. And this is where the Bible, as it talks about membership and it talks about what a church is, it uses a number of different images. It doesn't talk about being a business. So when we hear membership, I think that's where our mind first goes to. A membership, like a gym membership or a membership at Sam's Club or a membership at Blockbuster, rest in peace, where we go and we pay our dues and then we receive the card and then we get the benefits. That's what membership is. So church membership is just this formal business thing. We're just a part of an organization. But friends, that's not the way the Bible talks about church membership. The way Bible talks about church membership is talking about being a part of a body or being a member of a body. It's one of the images that the New Testament uses to describe what a church is, a body. Paul extensively talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, each and every person, as you join a church, you have a different purpose, sovereignly and intentionally designed by God to be able to be used within the ministry of a church to help build that church up in love and reach the nation for Jesus Christ. Each and every person is different, and that's by design. Each and every person here has a different story about where you came from, what God has done in your life. You have different interests and passions. Some of you may love to play the violin. Some of you may love accounting. Those two people are very different, but both serve the church in very meaningful ways. And those things weren't accidents. God didn't forget parts when he created you. There was no accident in your personality. There was no accident in your story to where you are right now. And God wants you to now plug yourself into a church to be a member of a body, whether it's a hand or a foot or a nose or a mouth or an elbow, for all of these members then to build up that body in love as Jesus Christ is the head. That's the way the Bible talks about membership. It's not about joining a club. It's about being a part of a body. The other image the Bible uses, apart from a body, most often in the New Testament is a family. Describing the church as a family. Brothers, sisters. I don't know if, you, if your church background, you come from a church where people were Brother Paul or Sister Carrie or whatever it might be, and it sounded super old-fashioned. It's actually incredibly theologically rich as it communicates the truth that we are all actually family, adopted into God's family as he is now our father. We have a new father and we've got a new family. And we then as a church, then together as a family, are then committed to one another. We don't just skirt out at the first sign of trouble, but there's a level of commitment. And it's here in that kind of community that teaching best grows as a family and as a body. The teaching can really take root. It's in that context of community we, we see that we're called to actually teach one another both negatively and positively. The book of Hebrews mentions this, the way in which we're to teach one another in a church. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 puts it this way. It says, watch out, brothers and sisters. Again, you hear that family language. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you in any evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Author of Hebrews is writing and saying, hey, every day encourage one another because sin is crouching at the door. 
It wants to pull your eyes away from Jesus. It wants to destroy your life. It wants to harden your heart. One of the ways we fight against that is through this conscientious community to encourage each other daily so there won't be an evil and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Part of why we have this community is to teach one another. And the only way you can teach one another is if we actually see one another. This was before text messaging or emails or tweets. And Paul was saying every, the author was saying every day, encourage one another. Make it a point. How much easier is it for us to do that? And so Hebrews 3 tells us negatively to be sure to teach each other in that community. And then from a positive aspect, aspect, later in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, puts it this way. It says, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, in order to stir up love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now from a positive aspect, the author is saying, as you come together and you gather as a church and you see one another, stir up love and good deeds in one another. Look for ways to provoke love in someone else. Look for ways to stir up someone else to be able to serve Jesus. We are then looking positively to be able to encourage people that way. And so we then within community, and friends, those kind of teaching only happens in the context of a conscientious community, which we're committed to one another, which we see one another, which we actually know what's going on in one another's life. And so we're called to encourage each other daily so you don't fall into sin and away from Jesus. Don't neglect to gather together so that you can help fan into flame love and good works that imitate Jesus. The context of our teaching, observing, and following Jesus is found within conscientious community. You may say, well, why would I join a church? Listen, if I locked arms with other people, they'd just slow me down. I'm going a lot faster on my own. What's the point? Well, friends, by locking arms with other believers, you might just get slowed down but you also might help speed others along. And in the process, God actually might redefine what it looks like to run after him quickly. It may not be what we have thought of. And so this is what we see in the New Testament and how it is we are pressing into church membership to be able to practically respond to this. Church membership, meaningful membership, a membership that matters, it gives our love someone to aim at. To be able to flip through a membership directory and say, how can I love or serve or encourage this person today? And friends, as a church is doing that and people press in, then we then begin to see God's teaching grow in our community and disciples be formed. And so whether that's here again or at another church, friends, find a church and plug yourself into it. And so here we're actually, as Garrett said earlier, we have a church membership class coming up this weekend, this Saturday. If you want to join our church, or if you want to just hear more about who we are as a church, this is a great opportunity to come and hear that. It's from 8 to 12 down at Liberty Baptist Church. But again, come for the next few weeks, and if at the end of that you go, you know what, I don't really think this church is for me, that is very okay. And come talk to me before going somewhere else, and I would love to help you find a church in the area where you can plug into. Because our concern isn't with growing our kingdom at the Grove, it's with growing Jesus' kingdom. And in that, we want you to be plugged into a healthy church community. So that's the first practical way to respond, meaningful membership. And the second 
is to join a community group. So if you're here at our church, you go, this church is my home. This is where I'm plugged into. Well, what we want to encourage you to do is get plugged into our community groups here. You may say, oh, community groups, do we have community groups? I've heard us talk about small groups. Are they the same thing? Kind of. That's a great question. We're actually changing what we call these groups. So up until this point, we've had what we call small groups. They're groups that are smaller than this, ergo small groups. They've met every other week. They've gone through different studies, and they've been incredible the last few years. But we've been taking the last year and looking at how to be able to more intentionally have a more fruit come out of these groups. Uh, Garrett Wood, who leads worship, also was brought in to help oversee some of this. He's been talking to different churches, taking a master class from one church on uh, how it is they do their groups ministries, talking to pastors, trying to see what can we do within our community to help be able to foster and form conscientious community here. And within that, we've seen we wanted to shift our small groups to what we're calling and reinventing as community groups. So same kind of thing, different name. Why change the name? Well, because our main hope to see formed out of these groups is we hope to see community formed. We hope to see this kind of conscientious community that is formed. We want to see that play out here. And so what do these groups look like? How is it any different? Well, honestly, we're just wanting to model these groups out of kind of the rhythms of Acts 2.42 and that first community that was formed from the Great Commission. In the early church in Acts 2.42, we saw that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and to prayer. So for us, we want these community groups to be biblically founded, outwardly oriented, relationally committed, and prayerfully dependent. We want to have those same four aspects to these groups. And so within that, we want to be biblically founded. Each of our groups are going to be sermon-based. And what that means is that the week that they get together and meet, they'll be talking from the previous week's sermon, trying to get God's word to drive deeper into our hearts as we then can apply it more specifically in our lives, wrestle with things that made sense, that didn't make sense, things that were challenging, things that were encouraging, or just take the text that we went through and just read through it and ask how it can further apply in your life. This allows us the opportunity to drill God's word deeper rather than doing a whole bunch of other studies and then spreading out more shallow. We want God's word to go out and then reverberate through the life of our church. And so we're going to be biblically founded and sermon-based. But also these groups will be outwardly oriented. You see, the early church was committed to the fellowship, this kind of mission that Jesus called them on. We hear fellowship, and we often think potlucks or hanging out or friends. And that's true with how we use the word. But in the Greek, the word's used a bit differently. It's used more like, if you are a fan of the Lord of the Rings, it's used more in the first book or the first movie, the fellowship of the ring. That word fellowship wasn't just because those guys like to hang out and get together, and Gimli and Elrond and all of them just loved to hang out and they were bros. No, they actually didn't like one another. Their fellowship didn't, wasn't formed by how much they enjoyed and how much they shared. It was formed because they shared a common mission, to destroy the ring. And on the process of that mission, they became friends. Friends, that's the way the New Testament uses that word fellowship. That we here in this room as a church, in community groups, we won't all have the same interests, but we all have the same goal. We all have the same mission. And as we strive towards that making Jesus, knowing Jesus and making him known, we will then begin to form relationships. But it's a byproduct, not the goal. So we want to be outwardly oriented on that mission. So one of the things we're doing is connecting our community groups with our existing gospel partners. 
trying to form relationships, every now and then praying for gospel workers and gospel partners on the field, staying in touch with them, um, maybe sending care packages, but developing relationships with them. Having our community groups rotate around and serve in Grove Kids is a great way to be able to serve outwardly and also serve together to continue to help relationships be formed, to look for service opportunities and outreach in our community and to do that as a group together. Or every month, once a month, having what's called a monthly hangout, where at the end of every month, the group gets together to have dinner or go play top golf or whatever else it might be and use that as an opportunity to be able to invite people um, that might be near to you or far from God. Maybe wouldn't come to a Bible study or come to a church. They go to dinner at Pepe's Cantina. And so we want to be able to introduce opportunities for evangelism within our group for it to be outwardly oriented. We also want them to be relationally committed, for them to be consistent. Right? You hear in Acts 2, it said they met daily. Man, like every, every day. Like I think that's what daily means, every day. Well, we're not going to go that far, but we are going to meet every week. We want there to be consistency. It's hard. If you meet every week or every few weeks, if you miss one of those weeks, it's a month or a month and a half or two months before you see people, and relationships can't really be formed without that level of consistency. And so we want there to be a meeting every week as there's an, a commitment to relationship within that group, to see community formed, and then being prayerfully dependent and reclaiming prayer in the life of our groups, knowing that we have the ear of our king who loves to hear the prayers of his people and having a portion of our time every week praying for people around that group, praying for ministries within our church, praying for gospel partners or praying for our community, praying for our nation or praying for our world. So we're going to be launching these revamped community groups in February. They'll be starting off here in just a couple of weeks. And in January 31st, there's going to be the opportunity to be able to sign up in our lobby. If you're not in a community group, you want to be in a community group or hear more information after the 31st um, on that Sunday service, you can go and sign up then. Because we know that Sundays alone are hard to form conscientious community. You show up, kids are running around, it's crazy, you show up late because there's bad traffic on 50, then afterwards you go and get kids, kids are again running around, and you're having a hard time having relationships and conversation. And so we want to form these community groups and model them after Acts 2 to help you form conscientious community and genuine care. We'll make sure that people not only know one another, that the needs of one another are known. As we then see, as a church grows, that we continue to care for one another as a family. As every one of our elders is connected to the community group leaders to make sure that we know how to be able to pray ways for us to be able to step in if need be. We want to continue to care even as the church grows and never just become an institution because the church isn't like a family. The church is a family. And so that's why we're changing the name of these groups to help us see clearly what our aim is. We want these groups in our church to form that kind of community in Acts 2. We want you to be a part of them. Not because it's a religious obligation that must begrudgingly be filled. Okay, pastor's saying we've got to go to this thing. It's another thing on my calendar once a week. Okay, I'll go to it. But because as we devote ourselves, and notice the language of Acts 2 here, it doesn't just happen and isn't necessarily easy. People devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and to prayer. And we have to devote ourselves to it. So as we devote ourselves to press into conscientious community here in our local church, we will find that our dull hearts are provoked to love. Our wandering eyes are lifted to Jesus. 
Our forgetful minds are reminded of God's grace. Our wayward feet are led away from sin and back to the cross. Friends, the call to conscientious community is to call to place yourself within the context that God is building himself to form his disciples. Jesus is building this church. Jesus is building every church around the world. And he's doing it on purpose. Because the church is God's plan A for reaching the world. And there is no plan B. And this community is the greenhouse where you as a vine will find your greatest growth if you press into it and commit yourself to it. So I want to end this afternoon right where we started. Because some might hear a sermon like this and think, oh, we're going to become so inwardly focused on ourselves that we neglect those on the outside. But guess what the result of that conscientious community was in Acts 2.42? As they devoted themselves to one another and to God's word, listen to what happened in verse 47. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Friends, it's the inwardly growing church that has the greatest outward impact. The person that is determined to know Jesus through his word and through his people is the person that will start to have the same heart as Jesus. A heart that moves to those who are lost, to those on the fringes, to those who are hurting. When you see Jesus as more valuable than anything else in your life, you will follow him anywhere and listen to him knowing that he has your best in mind. You can look at the cross and you can look at his great love for you. You can see that Jesus followed the call of his father in order to save you. And then ask, are you now willing to follow him? To press into and form this kind of community this year. To fulfill the mission that he has sent you on. To go, to make, and to teach. Let's pray. God, there are a million things that vie for our attention, that pull our hearts away from you. But God, as we begin this year, would you help us see what it is that you're building here and in every church around the world, every Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. And God, would you lift our eyes to see that as you have shown us mercy, as you've called us out of darkness and into marvelous light, that you aren't just saving individuals, you are saving a people. And you are forming a people. You are forming and getting together a family. God, this is how you've always acted, how you have always worked. God, you have been establishing and working and making and setting up your kingdom through a people. Yes, you care for us individually. You know the numbers of hairs on our heads. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. And you are also calling us into a community. God, an embassy that's set up here as ambassadors that are fighting for your kingdom in a foreign world. So God, help us this year to press into that community, to be able to see it as valuable, to be able to see it as worthy of what you have called us to, and to see the true grace that comes from pressing in. That the cost may be great, but God, the return and following you and seeing you and forming those kind of relationships is far greater. God, we love you, and we are so grateful that you have saved us and that you have called us and that you've now sent us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.